live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 23 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and he's online at DuntroonLLP.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter. You can find that at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend and you can follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the account named PR Law Podcast. It's all one word. And you can also subscribe to us on YouTube or SoundCloud as well, not to miss a show. And we are happy to take your questions. So if you uh, have a question for you and or me on any topic of your choosing, just tag them on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod and we will answer those in a future episode. You and what's happening? Well, I'm good, Kim. I'm doing well. You know, my daughter's, uh, she's started kindergarten. She's back in school. My, my wife and I are, are spending a little bit more time in our offices. It feels like we're kind of slowly but surely starting to get back to some semblance of of normal or a new normal or whatever the heck it is we're supposed to call it. I don't know. You know, um, I obviously, yeah, we're, we're good. I obviously don't have kids. Is that kind of a bittersweet thing? Like it's your daughter's not around, which I'm sure is kind of in a way you can get more work done maybe, but also kind of uh, bitter that she's not around as well. Well, you know, I think if I had to describe one word, it would, or use one word to describe it, it would probably be just weird. It's just weird, right? Um, because of course she's just starting kindergarten and she wears a mask every day to school. And, you know, from my perspective and, and, and my wife's perspective, obviously that's really bizarre given what our experience was like in, in school. Um, but of course, you know, from her perspective, this is just sort of her normal, right? And, and that's the part that's truly weird that, that for, for kids uh, going back to school, particularly the really, really young ones who are <clears throat> starting junior kindergarten or going to school for the first time, this is their normal, and when they look yeah. back on photos and, um, you know, ask us to sort of describe the experience, um, you know, it'll be bizarre for us, but it won't be for them. This is just how how life is for them. Yeah, I think there there is going to be a, a period of trauma. I think we're still in it. And I think that especially young people, they're going to feel this for their entire lives, you know, growing up through this and the disruption to classes. Um, I mean, the, the, the disruption to the routine especially has just been really, really severe and dramatic. And I don't think we have any idea yet what, what, what the fallout is going to be or even to guess what it might be. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I was talking with my sister who's an elementary school teacher. And one of the, the issues that she raised, which I hadn't really considered, but then after the fact was sort of reflecting and can certainly see how this would be an issue is that, of course, everyone is wearing masks. And when you're dealing with really, really young children, of course, you know, really the main driving force of, of a child in, in kindergarten or grade one is the socialization, right? It's being around other children, learning how to react in, in certain social situations. And of course, so much of that is determined by facial cues and how people react to things that you say and things that you do. Well, when you're wearing a mask and all of 
the students around you are wearing masks and your teachers are wearing masks, it becomes infinitely more difficult to sort of gauge their reaction to a given situation, right? And for for you or I, I mean, it, it's difficult for adults even at the best of times, but at least we have some foundation and experience in terms of understanding what a reaction to a particular comment might be. Now try and imagine when you have no idea what a reaction might be to a particular statement because you're learning all of this stuff in real time and you can't get those those facial cues because of because of masks. At least though she kind of won't know any better. Like that's kind of I mean for us it's it's we've lost something, right? Like we look at people we can't really see what their what their mouth expression is for instance. But if it's if it's for kids and it's just been this way all along i think it it, it might be a little bit different because it's a little more common but I, I have noticed this you and like there's times when i pass people in the hallway in the office or something and i'll often give them like a polite grin or a smile or and it's, i've realized they can't even see that like they can look at my eyes and I, they know i've looked at them but they have no idea if i've acknowledged them or not <laughs> so i'm trying to be a little more expressive um on this because i recognize that the way i communicate is through those sort of those those visual cues um you using your 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 face to sort of send a message, but that's a lot more difficult to do now. Yeah, well, and, and sort of to that point, you know, my sister was talking about alternatives, things that they're doing to try and introduce other visible cues to, to, to sort of tip off students because they can't see children's faces. So things like, you know, exaggerated waves and peace signs and hmm. different sort of hand gestures to convey, you know, how they're feeling about things because you may not be able to determine that by looking at their face. But you're right. I mean, and, you know, what do you do in a business context? I mean, I think about you know, if you're engaged in a meeting and particularly if it's, uh, you know, something adversarial, if you're dealing with lawyers, for example, and, you know, you're trying to get a sense of of what opposing counsel is thinking or feeling or what their client is thinking or feeling and you can't see their face. Um, yeah, I mean, these sorts of scenarios, we don't really have much experience in dealing with this stuff. Right. So it's it's a whole other learning curve. Yeah, it's definitely an adjustment. You know, like I, I, I said, I've been in the office for the last couple of weeks now. And, um, you know, uh, uh, one of my colleagues who I work very closely with, she took her mask off. Like sometimes she takes it off at her desk. Um, you know, just, I mean, you're, you're sort of separated anyway. You don't work too closely with others. And, and she sort of looked at me and began talking and like, I noticed some, something was strange. <laughs> Like, as I was looking at her, I'm like, geez, I didn't really know how, what you looked like before. <laughs> uh, right, because, you know, right. like, I, you know, I literally hired her um, and we wore masks the entire time from the interview process into the into the office. And I hadn't really seen the rest of her face before. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it is. This is a, just a weird time, uh, just in general. Um, wow. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. One of the other um, actually along these lines, you and I, I had an interesting case this week in the office. Um, so I've mentioned before that I, I work at um, Tencent, which is a large Chinese internet company that's in the news quite a bit these days. Um, but, but this week, you and we, we did what was um, the first one that we've done, which is um, I hosted a, a seminar internally um, just on sort of U.S.-China relations and where the, that's at these days, because obviously it's at a, at a difficult time. And um, some of the guests we had on there, I think you're familiar with them, Kaiser Kuo, who was quite 
quite big in China. He he yeah, wrote for a lot of yeah, tech of publications, and and he was the uh, the 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 PR uh, head for Baidu for many years in Beijing. That's China's top search engine. Uh, but we also had Wang Feng, who's from FT Chinese, and uh, a guy named David Pock, who is one of the senior editors at a, an excellent Chinese website written in English about Chinese sort of culture uh, called The Sixth Tone. Um, and it was it was a, a, just an excellent session, sort of the first time I've moderated a discussion. Um, throughout all these years, I've hosted events and I've done all kinds of other things, but never actually moderated a panel discussion. Um, and this was 90 minutes, and it was entirely in English. Um, and we had, you know, more than 10,000 people watch it. Uh, it was done live, so it's the, the 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 internal uh, the internal audience was 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 really large. I think it's it's a really good plus, and I think the one takeaway I got out of that UN is obviously the information ecosystems are very different in the U.S. and in China, and obviously the uh, languages, of course, are very different. So it's um, you know it's kind of hard to sort of interoperate that way. Um, but there's a lot of genuine interest inside China about how the U.S. is thinking, sort of how the, the election is coming up. You know, is Trump going to be elected again or not? Um, and it's really encouraging. Anytime somebody says, you know, like Chinese are in a in a um, or they're brainwashed or they're sort of in an information bubble. I think this was a really good example of how they they, they are. They do yearn for really good information. And we got some amazing questions. I'm not going to share them here, but I, I'll say they're questions that probably wouldn't normally be asked. Um, but because it was such an open discussion, uh, it was it was it was quite useful. Wow. Well, that that's that's great to hear. I mean, also that there was that level of openness despite the remote nature or perhaps because of the remote remote nature. I mean, did you find that people were generally more forthcoming with sensitive questions or, or topics because they felt they had a little bit more anonymity having not being physically in the room? Well, they didn't really have anonymity because it was through an internal system, right? So to register and to join up, you would use your your internal username, right? So, I mean, people were, were identifiable, but the, yeah, the questions were ones that would not normally be asked. Let's just put it that way. I was quite surprised at some of the sensitivity of some of the questions. But but again, it was not, um, I mean, we didn't come across any sort of screeds or sort of nationalist kind of remarks. It was really sort of um, moderate, I would say. And uh, the feedback was good. And I, I just think this is such a good sign because when we take a look at, I mean, this is a very minor thing, right? I mean, it's an internal discussion uh, at, at one Chinese company, albeit the largest one. Um, but I mean, when you take a look at the U S China relationship in general, there's just so much, I think anger, obviously on both sides, but also misunderstanding on both sides. Uh, and so these little victories, I cherish a little bit, um, just because it shows that underneath there's a genuine desire to sort of understand and, and, and hopefully make things better. Um, yeah, well, that's good to hear on the flip side though. Um, I don't know if you've caught this news back in Canada, but we've had people leave Hong Kong lately, people who were either arrested during the protests or, or otherwise sort of in trouble. Uh, and they've been taking speedboats to Taiwan illegally. Uh, but most recently, and, and of course this is remarkable for Hong Kong because for a hundred years, this is what people in mainland China were doing to get to Hong Kong where they knew that they would be safe. And now we're seeing it going to Taiwan. And, um, obviously to get there, you have to go through international waters. And part of that actually, uh, is PRC, uh, people's Republic of China waters. And so 12 people were picked up between the ages of 16 and 33 
by the Chinese Coast Guard, mainland China's Coast Guard, and taken into detention in Shenzhen. It's probably the worst possible outcome because they now cannot exercise the rights in Hong Kong, which they would have otherwise. Uh, now they're in mainland China, and uh, this has become the latest spat between, between Mike Pompeo and the U.S. government uh, and China. Wow. And I mean, is this becoming commonplace? Is it, I mean, do we have any sense as to how many people have been trying to get get over to Taiwan? Is this just the first sort of reported case that's kind of hit um, major press or? No, there's been several. This was not even the, the not close to the first journey. Um, but it's all very hush-hush, right? Because Taiwan also doesn't want to make a big deal of this because um, obviously puts Taiwan in the headlines as well. If they take them in, that's going to upset China. But if they don't take them in, um, that's going to upset everybody else. <laughs> so um, we don't know exactly how many times this has happened other than some people have made it already. And um, I get the impression that this is this is becoming um, an option. It's incredibly dangerous, obviously. And it doesn't look like the boats are going directly from Hong Kong to Taipei. Taiwan. It looks like somewhere there's sort of another ship that's ready to meet these these boats to take them the rest of the way. But obviously, this is very, very dangerous to do, uh, especially when you've got, you know, drones and surveillance and satellites and everything that can watch these areas so closely. Right. Well, and you also suspect that the more cases there are, the more of the, the mainland is just going to crack down on this sort of activity, right? Yeah. It's just another sign of just how things have changed in Hong Kong, because you would never think people would be leaving here out of human rights concerns and taking these kinds of risks. I mean, this is a first world city. I mean, people are, they're, they're wealthy generally. And so this is not normally the type of thing you would see from a place like this, but um, that's kind of where we're at, unfortunately. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, take it away, dog. Yeah. So earlier this week, Cam, the, the, the Bank of Canada governor, um, Tiff McElmore, indicated that, you know, our economic growth is going to continue to suffer here in Canada if, if women and younger and low wage workers uh, become discouraged and ultimately exit the labor force. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we've we've talked about this and we talked about it in the early months of the pandemic that, you know, most economists and frankly, employment lawyers, we were saying the same thing, predicting that it was going to be those who were already at a disadvantage heading into the pandemic that would most likely bear the brunt. So, you know, lower paid workers, women and racialized workers, um, and particularly those who are self-employed, right? Well, um, if you can believe it, Cam, we now have about six months of pandemic data um, because we're into September now. Um, and this thing started some time ago and the numbers, they certainly reflect exactly what we feared was going to be the case. And, you know, while these numbers that, that I, uh, came across and some of the, some of the press earlier this week pertain to Canada, I, I also looked into the data in the U S and the numbers pretty much tell the same story, Cam, mm-hmm. um, you know, lower paid women, racialized workers, self-employed. These are people who are are bearing bearing the brunt of this of this pandemic. And some of these numbers are crazy. So I just wanted to quickly go 
through some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, specifically with regard, with regard to women by August, you know, men's working hours, they were down about 9.7%. Uh, women, however, their hours were down 13.1. So, I mean, clearly there's a gap there. Is this an Apple? Are we talking about in the same, sorry? in the same positions or in the same professions, or is this just <clears throat> generally just all males, all females and we're getting averages? All males, all females. Okay. Because I think a lot of this could do with sort of the nature of the work as well. And, and this is another absolutely. probably systemic problem that we have, but, but that's probably part of this. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. It, it, it absolutely speaks to the type of jobs um, that are dominated by women versus the types of positions that are statistically dominated by men. You're right. Um, I mean, and the numbers get even more jarring, Cam, when you, when you look at men and women that are parents. I mean, it's the parental status where things sort of really, really get kind of crazy. So, you know, women in homes with children under the age of six, their working hours, even by by August, were down 17% compared to just 4% among men. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's insane. <laughs> that's really, really crazy. Um, and this is precisely the thing that we were concerned about going into this pandemic, which was we were going to see women taking taking the hit here in terms of staying home um, to, to take care of children while daycares were closed, schools were closed. And of course, the hope was that when things got back to some semblance of normal, women would go back to work. Um, but, you know, the numbers just don't just don't bear that out, Cam. And, you know, this is really, really, really disconcerting. Well, I mean, I'll say for one, when we say, um, you know, once this is over, people will go back to work. I think it's far too early to say um, or to make a decision over or a conclusion over whether people have gone back to work or not, because I know we're still in this thing. Like it, it is good that, you know, you've got the schools open there in Toronto again and things like that. But you know, it's not the same everywhere. And, um, I still think we're a long way away from being past COVID-19. And, um, you know, I was taking a look at, at the travel industry. Um, so I believe it was the CEO of Southwest, uh, who talked about, it could be two or three years and up to 10 years before we get back to 2019 levels of travel, just because there's been such a, a heavy blow delivered to the travel industry. And because, Obviously, technology has shown people that they can they can do a lot of this over over Zoom, even though it's not quite the same. Uh, and then just fear of travel in general for picking up, you know, these sorts of things. And, and so it's not something that's going to come back soon. Definitely not this year, probably not next year. And I wonder if a lot of these jobs where you're talking about where the females have been impacted the most, if those are similar situations where where they may come back someday, but it might be too far down the line where it doesn't matter anymore to the person who lost the job. Yeah. I mean, and we, we've talked about this before as well, right? I mean, the longer that you're out of the workforce, the harder it is to reintegrate, right? Employers are are generally reluctant to hire employees who haven't worked in a few years. I mean, they just see that as, as such a classic red flag of, well, you know, there's probably a good reason why this person has been unemployed for, for two or three years and has been unable to get a job. Um, so, you know, you're going to see that sort of inherent system discrimination against women who ultimately are trying to reintegrate, whether that's, you know, six months 
um, down the road, a year down the road or two years down the road. Um, but, you know, you also raise another point when you're talking about Zoom and certain, you know, certain activities that have moved to sort of a virtual arena for for labor. Well, but I, I mean, and again, that's sort of the domain, typically speaking anyway, of of higher paid workers. Right. And and those employers who have been able to develop work from home arrangements. But, you know, lower paid workers, I mean, particularly minimum wage employees, they just haven't fared as well in that regard. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, 23 percent of minimum wage workers either lost their jobs by August or had their hours cut by more than half. I mean, that's that's insane. Whereas when you look at sort of the highest paid workers, um, I mean, for for them, statistically, by the by the end of August, I mean, it's almost it almost looks statistically as if the recession is over in the highest demographics. I mean, the vast majority of return to work. And in some cases, they've actually their working hours have increased um, in some cases because they're carrying heavier loads on account of all of the lower level positions that have either been, you know, you're dealing with temporary layoffs or positions that have been eliminated. Um, so, it, you know, those lower wage workers are really, really bearing the brunt. And then when you look at public sector versus private, again, same thing. I mean, you know, public sector employees have 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 in many regards been infl- sort of insulated from all of this stuff. But we haven't seen that in private sector employees. And we certainly haven't seen it in self-employed and gig economy workers. I mean, you know, we're looking at the numbers there are crazy as well. We're talking about 26 percent have lost their jobs or more than half of their typical working hours. And, you know, I'm sure some of these gig jobs will come back. I'm sure there will be new gig jobs that will emerge in the wake of the pandemic. But um, it is really disconcerting when you see these sort of precarious employment positions and precarious workers on the lower levels. And you wonder, what are they going to do? And how long is it going to be before they can get back to to making some sort of sustainable living? So what's uh, the solution to this then? I know it's not going to be a one sentence or a few words to solve it. But I mean, in your position, sort of as an employment lawyer, I mean, you, you see the numbers. I mean, I'm not honestly very surprised with the numbers. I think we expected them to come through this way, and they have. Um, but what, I mean, how, how do we deal with it? How do we change it? Yeah, well, yeah, good, good question. I mean, maybe we dedicate an entire show to talking about this subject. Um, I mean, I, I think... There has to be a lot of a, a lot of things here that we need to we need to address, right? I mean, we need to address the the inherent systemic issues at play in the in the labor force, right? I mean, why is it that women are continuing to to bear the brunt here? And when we look at at, at racialized groups, again, the same thing sort of presents itself that racialized groups are are being impacted and hit much, much harder than non-racialized groups. I mean, again, these these pertain to sort of systemic inequality within the labor force. So I think in, in terms of addressing that, we're going to need to see, uh, you know, a mix of things. We're going to need to see governments try and, and introduce policy and legislation to address it somehow. And, you know, depending on 
on where you fall politically. I mean, you know, some some politicians suggest that the solutions to that are things like, you know, increasing minimum wage, paid sick days, you know, and extending eligibility for unemployment benefits, those sorts of things. Um, you know, if you're if you're an employer, um, particularly of a small business, well, that's sort of the antithesis of the solution, right? Because I mean, from from that perspective, you're just applying greater pressure on small businesses to try and um, stay afloat. So, you know, they're going to be looking at other solutions. Um, I think, you know, we can look at employers developing policies internally to try and address some of these inequalities, be it, you know, more sort of liberal work from home policies to try and address the fact that, you know, you have you have women or young parents who may not be in a position to return to the workforce or sorry, the office, um, you know, a bricks and mortar office on a full time basis. So what can we do through our policy and procedures to try and, you know, address that inequality to try and ensure that we're not losing these workers um, and we can keep them in the workforce. I almost don't even think this is about the pandemic at all, um, because if, if we take a look and say, OK, well, we want to rectify this so the next time we have a, you know, a mass incident or a layoff or a pandemic that, that this is more fairly distributed. It really just is about this sort of structural inequity in, in, in the workplace um, at large. And that's really the issue. I mean, I think we've seen this not only just sort of across gender lines or racial lines like you you mentioned mentioned, but also income. I mean, when we talk about the, um, the essential services, you know, the food delivery guys and the meat packing plants and, and these sorts of areas, they're, they're often very low, low paid, uh, jobs or low paid, uh, work. And, um, yet they're the ones that really the rest of the world relied upon in order to get through this time. And those groups are taking, um, you know, some big risks with their health often. So, you know, these are, these are big problems. I think that the, that the pandemic sort of brought to light. And then the other one, which you sort of touched on um, about uh, technology, I think, you know, we've seen the technology companies, uh, Google, Amazon, Apple, uh, post, you know, record profits. I mean, they, this has literally been good bus- for their businesses, um, the pandemic. And it's really sort of exacerbated that have and have not uh, sort of society that's growing in the United States, but also by extension um, elsewhere as well. And I, I don't know, you know, um, I, to me, when people say, what is the, the biggest issue? Obviously, you know, climate change is there. But to me, this is the one that we need to focus on, which is this wealth gap, because it's getting worse and worse. And and even if you take a look at the protests uh, slash riots in some cities in the U.S., I mean, a lot of this is coming from just the, the it feels like things are tilted so much in favor of the wealthy now. Um, and, and I see this in my own job as well. So um, it's I, I, this is the biggest issue to me. And I, I feel like if we can sort of address this, then the the sort of knock on effects later downstream will sort of fall into line. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know you're you're bang on in saying that this isn't really a pandemic issue. It's not like these issues didn't exist before the pandemic. I think like so many other issues, the pandemic has sort of exacerbated it and and accelerated the pace. Yeah, made it more um, visible. It, pardon me. Made it more visible. Yeah, and made it and made it more visible. You're right. Um, and I think. If anything, that's actually a good thing. I think that that's a good thing because it means that people are engaging and discussing these issues in a way that they weren't doing it before. And it has, you know, I think it has resulted in some sort of some some good 
um, and, and progressive changes. You know, you talked about technology. Um, you know, I, I was speaking with, uh, with a friend who's a public sector employee and she was telling me about, you know, um, her group and their sort of plan pre pandemic to create sort of, you know, cloud-based servers and, and create an environment where employees can work remotely, um, when necessary. Well, they were talking about a three year timeline to get that done, right? Three years. If you can, if you can imagine, well, the pandemic, uh, I mean, left them with no choice. And basically they were able to implement and develop a system that they had, had projected would take three years to complete in a matter of three months. So, and I think we've seen a lot of stuff like that. Um, that's good. That's, that's sort of indicative of people, you know, getting smacked across the back of the head in a way that I think they, they needed to be. Um, but, but these, these issues are, are going to be more complicated, um, in addressing and they're going to require, and this is where things really get complicated. You know, they're going to require multiple levels of government. So you're going to require, you know, federal government involvement, state or provincial, depending on, you know, what country you live in, you're going to need involvement at a municipal level. And then you're going to need engagement from the private sector as well. Right. Because I mean, at a certain point, businesses have to see this as beneficial financially. And we, we've we've seen this time and time again, where you sort of have a legislative goal from, from a government's perspective, running contrary to what is in someone's business interests. Really things get done when those interests are aligned, when, you know, a policy objective is consistent with a business being more financially viable. So I think we need to try and figure out some out of the box solutions where we're, we're implementing, you know, the public and the private and getting them on the same page to try and, um, and, and come up with some, some solutions because really the economy is ultimately what's going to suffer. And at this point we need everybody working. It's not good enough to say, well, you know, sort of the highest income earners are back at work, we need as many people in the workforce as we possibly can, because most countries around the world um, are so heavily indebted as a result of this pandemic um, that we're going to need to balance the books ASAP or we're all going to be in a lot of trouble. So, you know, what's interesting about that? There's no way to make that a priority, really, though, the most people in the workforce, because companies obviously do not set out to hire as many people as they can. They set out to make a profit. Um, and hire as many people as they need and no more. And uh, the public sector does, um, I mean, uh, the, the public sector too is under a lot of sort of scrutiny. So it's often not sort of hiring a lot of extra resources either. So, so it is, it is got to be a partnership between the public and private sectors because ultimately it's the private sector that really creates uh, a lot of the a lot of the jobs. But this this reminded me of something, Ewan, which I uh, went through recently. Um, this is where Canada and the U.S. kind of separate a little bit. I mean, I had a, a really good friend, Nathan. You you knew him. He was in Hong Kong. And he, him and his wife were both from the U.S. And they were worried about their health care all the time. Um, they even brought it up, you know, while they even lived in Hong Kong. They said, you know, where, where can I get health care insurance? Should I go buy health care And I remember thinking, I, I never think of this. Like, I, it's never crossed my mind. Because I knew living in Canada, it was it was it was just looked after basically, um, and and that's a big help when when people. I mean, Nathan used to tell me all the time, like people are one medical emergency away from living in their cars, 
And that's, that's, that can be true, you know? And, um, I mean, I thought again, because I I had a, uh, a muscle issue in my leg (laughs) recently. And, um, I mean, right now, I mean, I've switched jobs recently. I do not have a medical card for my new position, but I went to a private tier one hospital and I went in there and they took me in and they gave me uh, an injection and then they gave me some muscle relaxants and some uh, anti-inflammatories and some painkillers. They did an x-ray all of this sort of stuff basically instantly. And then I got a bill of 1,600 Hong Kong dollars, which is what, $250, $250 maybe US. That was at a top flight private hospital. If I had gone to a public hospital, I could have had the same thing for 150 Hong Kong dollars, which is about 20 bucks US. And this is, this is as a non-resident. This is if anyone lands in Hong Kong and just decides to go to the hospital. This is what you will pay. Um, and again, I thought, geez, I feel even lucky to be here to have that kind of, of healthcare as well. Um, and, and when you have this, be it Canada or Hong Kong or elsewhere, it does take a lot of that stress away. And the fact that the employer is sort of tied to your health insurance in the U S just makes it very precarious for everyone. And it makes people vulnerable, um, to abuse and other things because they're unable to leave their work because of those health concerns. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's a, it's a huge, huge issue. Benefit coverage is always, uh, you know, a top priority for, for any employee who's looking for, for a job, right? Um, particularly if you have dependents, I mean, if you have children, then it's even more important. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I just, I, I hope, and, and again, you sort of talked about businesses, you know, being for profit and they're not interested in hiring as many employees as they can. They're interested in hiring the best employees to grow their business. Well, you know, he, here's the thing where, again, we're talking about policy objectives and financial sustainability or profit where, where these interests can possibly align. There may be a number of top tier candidates who are out there. You know, let, let's look at women, for example, because again, we know that statistically they, they fare the worst in terms of reintegration back into the workforce. Well, they may be top tier clients, but they have to stay home to look after children because of the current circumstances or whatever their, their, you know, their circumstances may be. Well, if there is an employer out there who has now developed a platform to enable a number of workers to work from home, all of a sudden they now have access to that employee because perhaps that employee who couldn't physically go into an office can work perhaps on a part-time basis, maybe even on a full-time basis, but can do so from home. And all of a sudden you can tap into a base of employees that wouldn't otherwise be be available. And of course, there's also a financial benefit to that employer under those circumstances because it could help them to reduce their footprint in a Brooks in a, in a bricks and mortar space and therefore reduce their overhead on, on a monthly basis, which also will increase their profit margins. So I do think that there are ways that, you know, businesses can sort of create efficiencies that align with reintegrating um, and 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 sort of tapping into an employee base that they may not otherwise have access to. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit prnlawpodcast.com. That's prnlawpodcast.com. Click support the show.
Thanks for helping us out. All right, I'm kind of excited today, Ewan, because uh, I want to talk about some PR issues that are happening in mainland China. So these are probably not issues that our audience is going to know well, uh, but I think it's kind of interesting uh, what's going on there. And it revolves around food delivery. So Ewan, you're in Toronto. I Mm. assume you guys have Uber Eats. Do you have other ones there like DoorDash or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. And there's Foodora, which we've we've talked about on the show before. Um, Yeah, there's a number of them. Yeah, I mean, we've got a couple in Hong Kong as well. We have Uber Eats, we've got Food Panda, and we've got Deliveroo. Food Panda and Deliveroo, obviously, being global companies now, operating in many, many countries. Um, China, though, mainland China, uh, there's two big players there. Uh, So food delivery has been going on for more than 10 years up there, but it has really consolidated and and it's now very sophisticated it's the it's the number one food delivery market in the world it's uh, expected to generate 45 billion us dollars this year in one year so it's about double the size of the us food delivery market um but it is it is changing so five years ago uh, about 63 percent of online food delivery app users were white collar workers and 30 percent were students and that's obviously changing. China's getting much more uh, competitive. Um, there's a lot, uh, a lot of large sort of local companies there and international companies as well. So if we fast forward to this year, actually it's white collar workers that are at 83% um, of, of the delivery, food delivery uh, market. And they're, they're calling out for delivery regularly. Um, so people are relying on delivered meals more often throughout the week. So 35% of delivery app users order food one to three times a week. And 35% of users order four to six times a week. So it's clearly keeping the country moving and keeping the country full. Um, the two main companies there, you and I don't know if you're familiar with them. One is Ulama and the other one is Meituan. Um, these are the, it's been consolidated. The, the market did go through some rounds of consolidation. The company I work for at Tencent does have a 20% stake uh, in Meituan, but it's an entirely different company that I have nothing to do with. Um, and it's listed in Hong Kong. So COVID-19 rolls around. At the time when the market is just heating up anyway, I mean, these companies, these two companies are going head to head in China in, in, in a really big way. And I can tell you when I'm in mainland China, I mean, the last time I was there was up for a wedding last year. And I, it was, a, you know, in China, they'll do a banquet around noon often. So we went to the banquet and of course I'm the only foreigner there and I badly needed a coffee that day. And uh, somebody suggested, Oh, just use Ulamont and get, 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 get a Starbucks latte. And it came in 10 minutes. I was really impressed. Wow. And I, I was, <laughs> I was not even at, at, at an apartment. I was in a ballroom <laughs> somewhere, um, but it was delivered fast. I mean, it's remarkable how fast uh, it is now up there. Usually 30 minutes is the guarantee that it'll be at your, at your house. Um, anyway, so Meituan added 336,000 new drivers in the first two months of this year. Think about that. What? 336,000 new drivers wow. in two months. So that's not including the drivers that they already had. Uh, and then for, for delivering, if you can get your order delivered on time, your, your sort of stipend or your, your bonus is about seven renminbi, which is about a U.S. dollar, one dollar. Um, and so there are some drivers that make 10,000 RMB per month, which is about 1400 US dollars a month. Uh, and that is actually a lot. 
in, in mainland China. That's not a bad salary. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's higher than the averages in Shanghai uh, and Beijing. Um, but as expectations have grown, uh, delivery times fall, more people ordering during COVID-19 has led to some pretty big problems. So earlier last week, a magazine in China came out with a long and in-depth report into this business and found that delivery times are so tight that drivers are taking incredible risks to get these meals to people in time, including driving against the flow of traffic. Oftentimes they're on little scooters or things like that. They're blowing through red yeah. lights. Um, you know, some maps, when they calculate the time, they show a walking route rather than uh, sort of an electric scooter route. Um, and if you want to take the road, it's much longer. So it often forces these scooters to go onto sidewalks, you know, or to take other risks to try and get there on time. Because if not, there's a, a punishment for that. Not only that, um, I think you've come across this too, you and uh, the buildings in China often have elevators that can be slow <laughs> or crowded or just kind of difficult. And so, you know, waiting around, this has become a big problem for them as well. Um, and this has kind of all happened under the radar in the last several years. Um, again, there's a really sort of sophisticated algorithm that, that, that sort of assigns these meals to drivers. There's, uh, as I mentioned, hundreds of thousands of these drivers out there ready at, at an instant to grab that order and then take it in. So it's really sophisticated sort of how this operates. But this was the first time there was a big study into, into the fallout from this. Has anything like this come out in Canada or the US to your knowledge? Because I have not seen anything like this yet. No, nothing, nothing, nothing on this scale. You know, occasionally it's like, oh, there's a, a food delivery courier on a bike. <laughs> um, I mean, and the biggest issues we've had in the press is what we've talked about on the show, Cam, right, is 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 food delivery service workers trying to organize. Um, you know, we also talked about the the Uber drivers um you know, the case that went all the way to the Supreme Court where they're trying to to get determined that their status is as an employee rather than independent contractors. I mean, really, that's sort of the issue we've been dealing with here around food couriers. Nothing, nothing like this craziness, though I'm sure it goes on. Mm -hmm. Well, this put these two companies in a very difficult spot, needless to say. So this, this in-depth report runs and it gets shared widely on social media, on Weibo, on WeChat in China. And people, people are angry. They're saying that this is not worth it. And, you know, these drivers have been basically abused and we have to change to sort of uh, make work more safe for them. So, so public opinion was, was clearly on the side of the drivers. Uh, which put the food delivery companies in a spot where they then have to respond. Now, the PR industry in China has grown a lot and it's changed a lot over the years, but sometimes it's still not great. <laughs> They're still learning. Um, and Ulama was the first company to speak. So they came out uh, and they posted a blog post on, on Weibo and on their website and on WeChat. And the title of the post was, Are You Willing to Give Me Five More Minutes? And it basically said that, um, you know, there's going to be an option now where people, when they're ordering their food, they can, they can click to say, I'm willing to wait five to 10 minutes longer for this order. But the way it was worded, customers felt they were being blamed for this as if it was their demands that, that put these drivers in these situations. Um, and even the way it was phrased about, are you willing to give me this? Um, it, it left kind of a, 
a negative taste, I guess, a bad taste in, in people's mouths. How do you feel about the way that's phrased you and, or the way they sort of approach this? Well, I, th- I think it's sort of, I think it's kind of interesting and a little bit, a little bit novel. And I'm, I'm sort of curious as to what the corporate involvement was. I mean, was this sort of a, a, you know, a worker initiative that they said, this is how we want it phrased. Did they consult with the, with the organization? In, well, no, in this was coming up with a statement. This was the company. The company is named Ulama. And so they, they're, they're the company that delivers, gets the food delivered, right? So they're the ones that put it because they felt under pressure after the article was written. So the company came out and issued a statement. Yeah. And it was in the form of a blog post and posted on social media. So it was actually the PR department of Ulama that would have put this together. Hmm. Well, yeah. And then I, I, I think it's, it's, it's problematic in that it's effectively shifting the blame either to the employees or to the workers themselves, right? Saying that as a result of, you know, whatever issues they might be dealing with around traffic or what have you, that they're just not getting you your food fast enough um, rather than addressing the fact that we're dealing with once again, and this was the issue with Fudora here, um, who, who basically was, was granted the right to collectively organize, to unionize, um, and Fedora just shut down and left left the marketplace. But what we know, of course, is that you know these workers they're in precarious situations. Your their work is dangerous if they're on scooters, if they're on bicycles. Um, it's problematic, and they deserve some protection, um, either under the law or at least some some guarantees from 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 the company that they're not going to die trying to deliver food to people. Um, so do I think that, you know, that's going far enough as a company to simply say, well, are you prepared to wait five minutes longer for your food? I mean, I don't know. I guess it's sort of a unique approach, but it strikes me as 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 inadequate from a corporate perspective. Yeah, that was the feeling in China, too. The, the, there was blowback to this. I think, number one, because it looked looked like the um, the customers were being blamed for this. And then number two, they felt it didn't address the root cause of this at all. And somebody had posted, you know, if, if, if I'm willing to give them another 10 minutes, does that mean they're going to slow down and sit at the light or take another order? They'll probably take another order because there's still the pressure on them regardless. Um, and the interesting thing with this, I thought is I I do think part of the blame is with the customer. (laughs) That's my own personal opinion, because there is now an expectation that food is delivered at this time. And people who don't get their food on time usually are quite expressive, shall we say, um, about the wait. So anyway, this didn't go well, but it was 18 hours after this was posted. The other company, Meituan, the other big delivery company, decided to make its own statement. And it was quite a bit different. It had a five-point plan for addressing the problem. And one was eight minutes of flexibility uh, built in, uh, strengthened safety standards, improved uh, system for drivers for how they're chosen and how they get out there and how they how they operate. The fourth one was supporting the safety of drivers and the well-being of their families. So I see safety on here twice, which was the one thing that I was a bit confused about. And then the fifth one was uh, taking public suggestions seriously. So these are the five things that Meituan had vowed to do. And what was interesting is there were a number of comments in Chinese media and on Chinese social media about the fact that Meituan did have the benefit of watching Ulama go first <laughs> and, right, right. and make its, its uh, disastrous statement uh, before it came out with its own, which was much more highly regarded and I think a little more to the point. Because I think 
if we stand back, this kind of a, a scandal can happen, obviously, to, to, to any company. And it came out of the blue. I mean, th- this was a, a, a magazine article uh, that prompted these changes, you know, just looking at the lives of, of these workers. And I think this could happen in a lot of different industries, to be honest, uh, about the demands that are put on workers, especially gig economy workers um, like these guys. So the company does need to get out and ahead of this. And I mean, like we would always say in this kind of an example is number one, you know, acknowledge the problem. Number two, make sure people understand that you understand the problem. And then number three, have some sort of action plan that's very clearly laid out that you will follow. Um, this didn't satisfy everyone in mainland China. There's still some critics of this saying that the, the, the root cause still isn't addressed. But to me, the root cause is the expectation that food can be, can be made and delivered to you in a super speedy way. Um, and it's just very difficult to do. I mean, you talk about Toronto or New York City. I mean, Shanghai is near 30 million people. Beijing's 24 million people. And when you're ordering food in these places and you think about the traffic and the cars and the sheer size of these places, you know, it's it's a miracle that they come as fast as they do, uh, at least in my opinion. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's also a really good point. You know, this is an, also an issue with, with Uber drivers and Lyft drivers in general, never mind these sort of offshoot um, food delivery services, you're, you're creating such an additional strain on the infrastructure in terms of transport. And I mean, transportation infrastructure, the roads and highways are, are that much more congested with all of these drivers or, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a real issue. And I, I don't know how you address that short of just shutting the whole thing down, which isn't really feasible either. Um, but I mean, that's that's a huge concern. And, and to your point, in cities like Beijing and Shanghai that are so densely populated, I mean, just think about the influx of additional vehicles on the road. That's crazy. Yeah, I think this is something that's going to be innovated away. China is already experimenting with drones for delivery. I think we're a ways away from that being rolled out on a large scale, but it's already being used. Um, I know Amazon's experimenting in the U.S. with something similar. I mean, the idea of like a, a, a person showing up at a restaurant and then hand delivering that, there's something very analog about that. Um, and right now, it's the, it is the fastest way to do it. But I wonder in a few years if, if that will be the fastest way to do it or not. Um, but I think it's, it's still going to be a challenge. I mean, people have quite divisive views over the whole topic of food delivery. I mean, I know there's some that think it's either lazy or ridiculous or whatever. And then there's others who do it all the time as the, um, as the China sort of percentage showed us, I think it was almost 90% or 80% of white collar workers order three times a week at least. Um, but I think during COVID-19 in particular, there was sort of a move to support these, these restaurants because, Obviously, a lot of these were either shut down for a while or or they had some sort of severe restrictions over how many people could dine in. And so ordering was a way to patronize these businesses and keep them keep them going. Um, but I mean, there's a there's a there's a downside and a fallout to to everything. And it, it is this. And, you know, we have a good friend in Beijing, you named Trevor, who actually runs a bar in Beijing. And he has complained to me vociferously about his elevators not <laughs> taking forever to come and get him because it's filled with guys delivering food and going back downstairs like they're around a lot. So it's become a real common thing for people to do. Yeah, that's that's a problem. Um, you know, of course. Also, and tourists not to completely flip the argument, but 
you know, do people not cook at home anymore? I mean, maybe this is sort of a total old school perspective. And, you know, as you know, I, I really enjoy cooking. Um, but you also, you have control over what you're cooking. And again, I think that's just one of the concerns where, and you see this so much among younger generations, um, that don't do any cooking at home. I mean, I, I remember, um, working with some of the younger lawyers I worked with, and some, some of these younger lawyers, they're literally ordering food for dinner every single night Mm. and not because they're stuck at the office, but just because that's their norm. And they might go to a grocery store, you know, on the weekend and, and maybe cook one meal kind of thing in a, in a given week from home. Now I know that in, in Asia, it's very, very different in that regard. And that's largely because, you know, the cost of, of purchasing food, particularly, you know, from street vendors and what have you is so much more affordable, um, that you really can sort of eat out quote unquote, any night of the week. Um, but I mean, I don't, I don't even know how people in, in, in North America can afford to do that on any given night. Where <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Isn't, isn't coming to you that, that cheaply, but that for whatever reason, culturally is deemed to be a priority that I'm not going to buy groceries and cook, cook at home. That's not something I'm going to learn how to do. I'm just going to, you know, use one of these, one of these services and have the food delivered to me. You know, when I used door, I was in Seattle. Well, I was with you in Seattle actually a year ago or so. It was August a year ago. Um, I did use DoorDash a few times there when we had to order food for groups of people. And yeah, A, I found it took forever to come. And B, it was really expensive, like outrageously expensive. And so, yeah, I, I see that as like a one-off, maybe Friday night or something, if you're having, pe- like, I don't know, something along those lines. Whereas here, it is more of a standard uh, a standard thing to do. I, I mean, I think the other thing too, and this is a huge cultural difference between Asia and especially North America, I think the idea of going to the grocery store and stocking up for two weeks worth of food and bringing that home and putting the cans of food away and put, you know, spending some time, multiple bags of food, and then you're set for a couple of weeks. Like that is unheard of. I've never seen that in any Asian country that I've been to. It really is sort of a once a day kind of thing. And I think in many places it's because, well, in Hong Kong anyway, because there's less uh, space. I mean, we don't have big rooms with deep freezes and things like that in them and large pantries. Um, but also it's just fresher. I mean, we, we tend to go to the supermarket almost daily because we can pick up fruit, vegetables, whatever else we need for, for a meal or for breakfast the next day or whatever it is that we're thinking of doing. And I liked doing this. I even started doing this in Canada, you and when I lived on Yates street in Victoria and Lara was around and you know, we used to go to the supermarket across the street every day after work. And that was kind of a routine. And I do prefer that now. Like I grew up with my parents going to the supermarket for big two week, you know, hauls of food. Um, but I've so, sort of fully adjusted to the day to day kind of situation. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait, oh, check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out on the PR in law podcast. All right. Take it away. Yeah, Kim, I wanted to talk about this podcast that I've been listening to. Um, and I, I know we've got a clip. It's called Nice White Parents. And I'd rather just rather than describe it, let's just cut to the clip because it, it tells the story. Here it is. I want to take you back to a time when a group of idealistic people feeling hopeful about the future, about America, threw themselves into the fight for racial integration. It was 1963, and New York City was planning to build a new school right next to a housing project where the students would be almost entirely Black and Puerto Rican. But these white parents came in and said, no, 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 don't build it there. Put it closer to the white neighborhood. That way all our kids can go to school together. 
They were dogged, these white parents, lobbying the city at meetings, writing letters, saying, don't build it there. It will inevitably be a segregated school. And we want our kids to mix with black and Puerto Rican kids from the projects. It's a decade after Brown v. Board of Education, they said. Schools should be integrated. There's an archive filled with letters where the parents wrote things like, we don't want our white children to be part of some, quote, small, white, middle-income clique. The Board of Education agreed, changed the entire plan, and located the building where the white parents wanted it. A few years later, the school finally opened. And then, none of them sent their kids there. I went through this box of letters, called as many parents as I could, Not a single person actually sent their kid to the school. Not one. What happened? Yeah, so there you have it, Cam. Hmm, Sounds Um, interesting. Yeah, really, really interesting, interesting podcast. Um, I've I've kind of bombed through it. It's only, I think, what, five episodes. Um, And, you know, I don't think you have to be a parent to be interested in this. This is sort of one of those one of those podcasts that touches on a lot of issues. So it, it obviously touches upon race. It touches upon urban geography, um, demographics, segregation, and also that sort of very, very sort of sanctum, sanctimonious liberalism that often rears its ugly head where you, you know, you have, you have whites talking about racial and cultural integration in this very sort of idealistic way. And yet when push comes to shove um, and they're in a position where they have to step up, they don't. And this, this podcast sort of faces those issues head on and in some very awkward and uncomfortable ways. Some of the interviews throughout the podcast will make you very, very uncomfortable, but also very, very thought provoking. I think it's well worth everybody's time. And what's it called? It's called Nice White Parents. Okay. And this is, um, this is part of Serial. Is that right? Because I know the New York Times purchased Serial. Yes, so this is part is. of sort of the Serial New York Times stable of podcasts. It is. It, and it's hosted by Chenna Joffe Walt. I hope I've pronounced that right. Um, and as she points out early in the show, she herself is white and she sort of stumbled upon um, this, this topic for a podcast while she was looking for schools for her own children to attend. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's definitely something I'm going to take a look at. Um, speaking of podcasts, I know I mentioned a few weeks ago the Tracy Lord story about the uh, 1980s uh, porn star uh, yeah. and the podcast uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in the Valley. Um, I listened to a couple episodes this weekend. There's one episode left. It's going to be the epilogue episode, which comes out on Tuesday. So I'm looking forward to wrapping that one up. But it's been it's been great, kind of like a guilty pleasure. Um, but the main thing I wanted to mention um, today, I, again, I hate to do this other than this was recommended by so many people and it was shared so widely on Twitter. I really do want to read it. I just haven't had a moment yet. And um, it's written by a guy named David M. Shell. And the title of his essay is Why Are Conservatives Obsessed with Pedophilia Right Now? Now, this sounds... Sorry, what? Why why are conservatives obsessed with pedophilia right now? And when you look at this, you think, okay, this is kind of an incendiary headline. But then 
this is a very interesting article, and it really takes a look at a lot of the conspiracy theories that have circulated on the right, and not even recent ones, ones way back, you know, decades ago. Uh, the most recent being sort of the Pizzagate uh, conspiracy. You and I think mm-hmm. you're familiar with this, of a DC uh, pizza shop, that there was a belief that Hillary Clinton and and her husband were running some sort of pedophilia ring in the basement. Um, so it's these kinds of conspiracies. And and generally the thought that, well, these pedophilia sort of uh, conspiracies surface in these rumors on the right, nobody's ever calling for something to be done about it. <laughs> that there is sort of this blasting of liberals believed to be part of this, but nobody sort of starting a charity or asking for donations to end pedophilia and things like this. Um, it's, it's a long article. It's been highly recommended. I've read just a little bit of it and I'm looking forward to going through the whole thing. I've kind of saved it for when I have some time to go through it. Um, but it looks excellent and, uh, and very unique as well. So that's, that's my contribution today. Okay. And yeah, that is a pretty incendiary Yes. Title. I guess the, the almost, most, sounds the, cli- almost sounds clickbait. It does. It doesn't. It, yeah. And when normally when you see something like that, you think it must not be very good. Uh, but I think this one, this one's a little bit different. And I guess the lawyer in you, does that sound like, do you, do you think of sort of things like libel and stuff like that? I mean, no one's named in this headline, but um, does that sort of, do you, do you yeah, sort of read things well, that way? Always. Um, but, but again, you know, I, the, the titles like that, regardless of where they fall in the political spectrum, just kind of they, they, they bother me in, in general, um, particularly as, as you sort of expanded on what the article actually addresses, um, because I just I don't really think that's to the benefit of of anyone. And I, think, I, I, I really I, I just I, I really don't. And it's precisely the sort of thing that, um, you know, that sort of left leaning individuals criticize the right for and then to sort of step up and effectively uh, characterize an argument or or an article in the same way. I, I just I don't I don't really think anything good comes from these sorts of titles or headlines um, on either side of the, the the political spectrum. I mean, let's let's sort of get down to the brass tacks and what are, what are you talking about? Um, now, I mean, I, I, it sounds like there's an interesting article in there somewhere. Um, but but yeah, I I, I I don't know about the title. Yeah, the only thing I'll say with the title, and I mean, again, as a former journalist, clickbait drives me crazy. But I feel like this title is backed up in here. So I, I would I would give it a shot before before uh, completely criticizing it. Um, cause there's pr- a pretty strong case made. Um, anyway, there's, you know, during the week, it's crazy. Like I come across, uh, articles or, or yeah, podcasts or whatever it might be. And I think I'm going to flag that for the show. And then I end up not flagging it for the show. Uh, I've got to really, really sort of set up a system where I don't lose these things. Cause there's always a lot of, a lot of really good stuff to talk about and to recommend. Yeah, I, I agree. Right. I mean, this is sort of just the information overload. Yeah. <laughs> it's the internet and Twitter. You, you come across so much stuff. It's, it's, um, it can be overwhelming sometimes. Yeah, for sure. And there's a lot of really good quality content out there too. Like people say, well, there's a lot of crap out there. Like, yes, that is true, but there is a lot of signal within the noise, um, that that's quality. And, uh, it's the one thing, this is the one area of my life where I really overspend. <laughs> like I subscribe to a lot of news organizations. And one reason is that I was a journalist. I work in PR. So obviously there's sort of a link there. But then the other one is I, I do want to support journalism in general. So I sort of justify it to myself in sort of a philanthropic way, um, trying to support as many of these organizations as I can. So 
Yeah. And, you know, we, we do the same in, in our house, we, we pay for a whole whack load of subscriptions for, for content. Um, and yeah, and I, look, I think that's important. I mean, it, it's like, it's like anything else in life, you know, you want quality content. Um, you got to pay for it. Um, good, good things cost money. And, and I can certainly appreciate and understand that not everybody's in a position where they have the luxury to be able to pay for, for things like that. Um, but for those who can, you know, pay for your content folks, <laughs> you know, pay for your, pay for your good content. Yeah. Or it pick one more good content and then everybody benefits. Yeah. And I know this is difficult because I mean, there's a lot of people living in cities where they want to get local news. Right. And that's difficult to find sometimes. Like it's easy to say, subscribe to the New York times or the economist or Bloomberg. Um, that's, that's okay. But people do want local news. They want to know what's happening in their, in their city or their state or their province. Um, and that's where it gets a little bit more difficult. But I do think it's worthwhile to to pick one publication, just one, if you're really short of cash. Usually these are not too expensive. I mean, the New York Times is almost 40 bucks a month, but um, a lot of them are not too bad. So so you should be able to get some sort of quality that way, I think. Anything else, Ewan, you want to uh, toss in before we wrap it up? I think that's it. Yeah. Good discussion today. Touched on a lot of different things. So yeah, thank you everyone for joining us. Don't miss a show. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice, uh, or you can subscribe to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels as well. And you can also get a heads up on social media uh, because we post new episodes to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Uh, and you can find us on those at PR Law Podcast, all one word, P-R-L-A-W podcast. I don't think I need to spell out podcast. Uh, don't forget questions as well. I probably don't need to spell PR law either. <laughs> don't forget any questions. Just tag your questions with the hashtag PR law pod and we will answer in a future show. So once again, thank you so much for joining us for you and Christy. This is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and law podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR law podcast. That's all one word. P R L A W podcast. Thanks for your support.